And welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week, we are going to talk about European solidarity on Ukraine. It is now coming up to three months since the war started, and we have seen a remarkable level of unity across the West, across the Atlantic, but above all, within the European Union. And what we want to do now is to invite an all-star cast of ECFR experts to help us work out how sustainable this European unity is, whether there are cracks starting to emerge, and what kinds of scenarios we can expect over the next three months, or sorry, few months. And so to help us make sense of this, from Paris, we have Marie Dumoulin, who is the director of ECFR's Wider Europe programme. From Rome, we have Arturo Varvelli, who is the head of ECFR's office in Rome, as well as a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And from Warsaw, we have Piotr Buras, who is the head of our office uh, there, as well as also being a senior policy fellow. But we're actually all sitting together in Malaga, Spain, for our annual staff retreat, where we've been talking a lot about these issues Marie, why don't we go to you first? You've been thinking about some of the scenarios over the next few months, which might actually end up putting some pressure on the the unity amongst European countries that we've managed to achieve so far. Do you want to talk about them? Well, it's obviously difficult to predict the outcomes of the war just three months after it started. Uh, But one can imagine several scenarios of how it evolves. And some of them are highly divisive for Europeans, the first one, and probably, well, I'm not sure it's the most divisive, but it will be divisive if, if it happens, um, with Ukrainian successes in the, in the fighting, there will be a point when um, Ukrainians and possibly some Europeans will think it's worth um, going to, to victory and um, taking retaking control of the whole territory of Ukraine, including the Donbass that was occupied before, um, well, since 2014, and Crimea. And there will probably in this situation be other Europeans who will say, wait, um, Crimea is probably a red line for Russia and we don't want to trigger an escalation that would be totally uncontrollable. Um, A second scenario we can imagine that will be probably less divisive but quite unstable for Europe um, is um, a, a scenario in which Um, The fighting stops because both sides are completely exhausted. You have a a de facto ceasefire along a a very long line of contact, but uh, fighting can um, continue or uh, resume every time. And this obviously would be extremely difficult to handle for Ukraine, but also for the Europeans. A third scenario that would be probably more stable for Ukraine, but very divisive for um, Europeans and for the West as a whole, is a scenario in which um, Russia and Ukraine agree on something um, that includes territorial concessions from Ukraine to Russia. Um, and this, in this case, um, I'm afraid that some will say if Ukraine agreed about it uh, with Russia, then we should recognize these territorial concessions. 
while others will say um, we can't um, we can't recognize because that would that would be a, an unacceptable uh, precedent uh, for the international uh, community. Um, one issue that will also be very divisive for Europeans, but that's um, I guess a long-term issue, is. Um, the question of how you rebuild a European security order. Do you do that against Russia, like building a, a wall um, to protect U Europe from Russia? Or do you try to build a security order that includes Russia? Um, I can see that some Europeans um, will be arguing that you can't have a stable security order if you don't take into account Russia's interests, while others will say the best way to protect European security is actually to build our own order that excludes Russia and to consider that Russia is the enemy. Great. Thanks a lot, Mahi. So that's, uh, that's quite uh, concrete things to do with the fighting. I think there are other things which we can explore as well, such as some of the effects of the sanctions and the refugees, but which I think relate to those different scenarios, which have a lot to do with how long one wants the fighting to go on for or whether to move to some sort of resolution. And I think in the, the discussion uh, from before the war till now, you have, you know, every member state coming at this with a mixture of geography and history and other sorts of things going on. And they're the two countries which often seem to have the, 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 the most different historical attitudes towards Russia are Poland and, uh, and Italy. So it'd be really interesting to hear what the two of you think about the, the different scenarios and, and how you think things are evolving. I mean, I have to say it's, it's a surprise, I think, to many people how uh, narrow the differences between Warsaw and Rome are compared to what they could have been. <laughs> But um, is that something which is likely to, to happen going forward? What did you think of Marie's scenarios, Piotr? Well, I think from the Warsaw perspective, this third scenario is, I think, um, particularly interesting and important. This scenario about the, yeah, it's about, <laughs> about the future of the European security order, because I think the prevailing assumption in Warsaw is that it's not going to be any European security order for quite a long time, so that we need to pre be prepared to live with in, in this confrontation with Russia and with a hostile Russia and not uh, give in to the, the illusion that basically we could create um, a new uh, settlement with Russia um, anytime soon. So basically, the, the default scenario uh, from the Polish perspective, I think, is is a rather long-term uh, confrontation, which we as the European Union have to and, and need to to um, accept and, and endure. And and this is where I think uh, we, we indeed will be probably facing um, quite a lot of tensions in Europe, because I don't think that this is a 
an approach which uh, uh, will be very welcome by by many other countries in Europe. So I, I think there there are some those who perceive this Russia's threat as existential, really existential. I mean, in Poland we have uh, bombs falling uh, f- five kilometers away from the Polish border. So so in Poland, for example, the the risk of a con- conventional confrontation with Russia is is not a theoretical scenario. And the same is true for the Baltic state. The same is true. I think from Romania, and and this is how 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 the societies and how the elites in those countries perceive this threat. And I think in in Western Europe you have more of a concern about a nuclear escalation. So basically, the only the only confrontation direct confrontation with Russia you can imagine in in Germany, in France, in Italy is that basically there would be a nuclear war. And that's why there is a, I think, a, a, a dormant kind of uh, cleavage in 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 the in Europe, where basically uh, uh, this this for 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 part of Europe, uh, and this is not a normative statement, but it's simply this is how it's how how this is experienced, how it is lived by the, by the societies that in a part of Europe this war is is not a direct threat to their to their security and to their uh, well-being beyond the of course the economic pain which which we probably will um, come to discuss as well and uh, and that's of course um, has major implications for how we can uh, think of the post-war settlement and of, of the end goals in this uh, in this war and and of the really the question of the post post war European order, which I think will be rather in a post war European security disorder, and that that we need basically to accept that, and and draw conclusions from for our for um, for our policies and for our also military posture. So Arturo, how does it look from where you're sitting in in Italy most of the time? Yeah, no. You're not in Malaga. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm talking about the the, the government, but also um, um, of the the public opinion, because I think that Italian public opinion was very affected by the attack, by the Russian attack, and there was a broad consensus in favor of Kiev and in favor of a mechanism of solidarity. For example, towards the refugees, the Ukrainian refugees uh, leaving their country. Uh, Nothing to do with the controversy over the reception of migrants coming from uh, North Africa, for example, uh, in the in the in the last in the last decades, and there be as uh, no uh, controversy, and even uh, the the more uh, the more uh, right wing parties uh, have uh, have shown solidarity, and this is quite bizarre in 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 Italy in some way, and uh, we. All know how much the issue of migration uh, and, and, and migrants and migration in general and refugees has been exploited in the in, in the in the past in uh, in Italy, but the risk, however, is that uh, over the time I think uh, um, and and with increasingly problems uh, as outputs of 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 this crisis, uh, I think, for example, uh, about about the energy problems we are we are. Uh, uh, Leaving now, uh, I think this kind of solidarity uh, may may fail, 
and uh, I'm, I'm thinking on, 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 on the fact that uh, we could face, for example, for example, a, a, an energy an energy crisis uh, with, with uh, gas rationing, uh, etc. Very high prices of, of, of energy, uh, unsustainable for our uh, industries, for example, uh, together with, with, with uh, inflation that, that continues to, to, to rise, so new economic problems. And this could, I think in this case, uh, this, this scenario could uh, erode the consensus towards any European solidarity and the mix between the, the right wing and the, and the extreme left, we call Rosso Bruni, red and, and, and black, uh, the, the extreme opposite side of the, of the political spectrum in Italy could consolidate it and help uh, Russian propaganda to give a new impulse of the, of the crisis and on the general perception of uh, this, this uh, aggression. Marie, as well as running our body, your program, you, you're based in Paris, which is, you know, another important country, which I think is, is also, I suppose, perceived to be more on the pro-engagement, cooperative side of the equation, not so happy with the, maybe the scenario that Piotr talked about from a, from a Polish perspective. How does the French government position itself on these sorts of things and, and how much thought is being given to how you can maintain European unity as we enter a new phase where um, Ukraine starts to, to push back uh, on Russia in ways that were, you know, quite unforeseen, I suppose, a few weeks ago, the, the amount of, um, of territory that the Ukrainians now seem to be hoping to, to, to reclaim. This is clearly a concern, how to maintain European unity, um, because it's obvious that um, some countries, because of their history and of their geography, are willing to support Ukraine um, until it regains control of all its territory and also to weaken Russia so that Russia doesn't have the capacity to launch such an attack in the future. On the other hand, um, I think the French government um, is keen on not going too, um, too far down that way and to keep the possibility to talk to the Russians because the French still think that at some point we will need to talk to them um, in order to prevent further escalation and um, and a too angry Russia that would, um, that would be detrimental to European security over the long term. The second concern the French clearly have is about nuclear escalation and what could trigger that reaction from Russia. It's not something that is perceived as an immediate threat, but it's something the French are really keen on understanding when uh, we cross the limit that the Russians see as their um, vital interest being threatened. Um, and that's something I don't think anyone has the answer to uh, right now. And of course, you know, what Europeans do is only part of the picture, you know, an important part of the context is what what the Biden administration is doing. A lot of the weapons and equipment which are flooding into Ukraine and which have allowed these kind of pushbacks have come from Washington. Um, 
And there are sort of conflicting accounts of what the Americans are trying to do. There's a very interesting article in Foreign Affairs recently by a Chinese academic who was saying that, you know, in the early stages of the, the crisis, it looked like the US was trying to, to deter Russia and to make sure that the, the, the war was as short as possible, but that they now seem to have, have flipped towards uh, wanting a, a, as long a war as possible and to, to make uh, diplomatic off-ramps as, imp- as difficult to take as possible for the Russians because this would weaken Russia and on the one hand, and on the other hand, allow Washington to paint China into an awkward corner by um, making it uh, co-responsible for, for Russian problems um, and therefore to, to be able to consolidate democratic Asia against uh, against China. So that's the perception in, in China. And there's certainly some uh, Ukrainians who are also kind of worried about this question about the diplomatic off-ramps, that they want, complain that the US hasn't really engaged that much in in the talks and seem to maybe be open to, to, to fighting till the last Ukrainian because it will help weaken Russia in the longer term and uh, and also China in the ways that were, were described. What's your kind of operating assumption about about what the US is doing, what kind of pressure or the US is, is willing to put either on Europeans to, to engage, what encouragement they're giving to Europeans to, to talk on the sort of more pro-engagement side, but also what their stance towards Ukraine will be, because um, everyone says, you know, it's up to Ukraine to decide how long they want to go on for this. But obviously, we are partly responsible for shaping Ukrainian choices if we give them huge amounts of weapons, if we subsidise them and pay for their GDP. Um, then, you know, um, obviously, we're, we're encouraging them. And if we reduce the amount of weapons and money we give to Ukraine, that will also have um, some sort of effect. So it's not as if um, we're not actively part of the Ukrainian choice on how they pursue this. I don't know who wants to, to comment on that. Yeah, I, I, I can say a few words. Yeah, I, I think the American policy is at the moment indeed slightly different than it was at the, at the very beginning of this conflict. And and because like, like all of us, I think also the Americans uh, are quite surprised by the uh, ability of the Ukrainians to defend themselves. And uh, this uh, prospect of, of weakening Russia or kind of uh, the, the question, what is what could be Russia's defeat is of course very much underdefined. Uh, we we don't know what would be a Russian defeat, how to define it. But I think a sort of Russian defeat is uh, has become a likely scenario, and of course it's a very attractive scenario to many, and also including the the, the Americans. And now, but but I think. I wouldn't go as, as as far as to say that that the Americans are ready to to fight to the to the last Ukrainian because the fact is that the Ukrainian government is and with a very high support of the society is also basically following uh, the strategy of uh, what Zelensky said at least regaining territories. Um, from the uh, basically the border from the twenty fourth of, of February and uh, Kuleba the the Ukrainian. Foreign Minister even said that basically the 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 end goal of this conflict will be decided on the military field, uh, which is I think, uh, and this is the Ukrainian strategy, 
And I don't think really that this is a, there is a consensus in Europe or in the West around that. But the United States seem to be, for the moment at least, supporting exactly this strategy. And, and as you said, the American support is, is key. I mean, in a way, we should be very happy that Europe is united in this conflict and and that's very good that these divisions are not yet uh, and hopefully not yet so deep and hopefully they will not emerge and that we are remarkably united i think but the fact is that even this unity of the european union without uh, american military support would uh, basically bring wouldn't bring anything because the war would end it in a in a very unpleasant way for now i i i my impression is that the the us has kind of crossed the Rubicon politically and is 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 ready to support Ukraine in a in a quiet far-reaching way and in long term uh, also militarily which also poses Europe in a position where we we can either follow suit which have which we have done all collectively and and individually some countries which were more skeptical like Germany uh, under this pressure of, of events and on the American pressure, they change the mind. Uh, all we at some point will will, will have to, or we will we, we want to to redefine our strategy, and then it it would be also a threat for the for the transatlantic cooperation. Mark, it's true that also that in Italy there is a, a lot of uh, preoccupation about about the nuclear threat, by about the escalation, and uh, I think on the basis of this. Uh, 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 fluctuating public opinion uh, that is ready to 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 do the to a sort of appeasement strategy. Uh, I think that also the Italian government by Mario Draghi that that take a strong position against against the uh, Russian invasion uh, will be in great difficulty in continuing to hold this kind of position with populist parties that progressively uh, erode this this solidarity sentiment towards the. The, the, the Ukrainians and uh, I think this problem is, is very related to the necessity of a, of a common policy or to uh, the necessity that uh, European Union produce common goods uh, public goods to afford this, uh, this kind of crisis in energy sector, in uh, in uh, in economy, uh, in the economy field, in in the migration field, uh, etc. So, you know, we talked about those scenarios which you laid out, Marie, at the beginning. Um, sounds from what Piotr is saying that we're kind of clearly headed in one particular direction um, on on a lot of those different scenarios, given how important the U.S. role is, but. Lots of things could happen which could throw us off course. Um, you know, one thing which we've already talked about is is the idea of a nuclear escalation. If if um, uh, it looks like Russia's heading for for a, a kind of regime threatening defeat, it's it's not impossible to imagine. But if even if not a nuclear escalation, some kind of escalation leads to chemical weapons or other things, which we talked about before on this podcast. But I, I suppose other things could be just the crippling cost of of sanctions um uh in different places um 
refugees we haven't really gone into yet but be great to hear a bit more from from Piotr in particular about how uh, Polish support for for the huge numbers of refugees that have been going through is 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 holding up and the sort of pressures that that's making societally but maybe before we go to talk about that Piotr Marie you can tell us a bit about what you think some of the triggers might be for for decision points on those different scenarios and when they might happen actually um, one of the difficulties to say that is that we are still in um, the fog of war um, and there is a high asymmetry in the information we get about this war. Um, we know, uh, well, we have a lot of information about Ukrainian successes, but we know very little about Ukrainian losses. So I, I'm afraid that we have a bit of a disbalanced picture of the war, um, because we hear that there is a successful counteroffensive of the Ukrainians in the north, and we hear very little about the progress the Russian army is actually making in the Donbass. So um, I... I don't really know what the actual balance is right now, and I'm afraid there is a part of wishful thinking when we think the the Ukrainians are able to fight as successfully as they have been doing so far and to at some point threaten um, Russian vital interests. Um, so honestly, I, I can't say what the trigger for each scenario would be. Um, the most likely, in my view at this point, is that fighting goes on as long as both sides are not exhausted and we end up in the kind of unstable ceasefire and I mentioned at the beginning. So Piotr, do you want to talk a bit about uh, how resilient Poland's going to be? Because as you say, on the one hand, it's existential, but at the same time, you know, the, the burden of just assimilating, finding accommodation for schooling and other kinds of things for, for the huge numbers of people who've been flowing into to Poland must be quite large, at least in the in the short term, even if in the longer term, Poland probably needs quite a lot of immigration in order to replenish its labour market from the, the Poles who've left to, to work in other EU countries. Yes, I think this, this refugee crisis, which um, occurred shortly after the, the, the outbreak of war, uh, is a, truly unprecedented in, in, in the Polish history. Uh, and it's, I think it's unprecedented in the history of the European Union even, because it is the, the size of, of this refugee wave uh, from the beginning of March is much larger than, than the one in 2015 into Germany because at the height of the of the German migration crisis we had like 10,000 people coming per day to Germany and that was the, the maximum and in Poland it was like 50,000 and we had uh, more than 3 million people cross the Polish border within a couple of weeks and we have now 1.5 million refugees still in Poland so I think this is really the, the magnitude of the crisis is, is, is massive and um, I think that the, the, this first and hopefully last wave of, of, of refugees, although there is a big if, 
uh, big question mark. Uh, mm, uh, this it, it ended uh, at the moment uh, where basically a, a collapse of the Polish uh, social uh, system and and in the in the in the uh, support system for refugees was already uh, almost happening. So we uh, I think we 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 have one point five million Ukrainians at the moment in Poland, but the many of them are still with the Polish families in their own private apartments. The central government has not done much uh, to to organize this uh, this reception system. Uh, there are local. Uh, governments and and they have a burden on uh, the, the main burden on their on the shoulders and I think uh, we are we so, so all of them are managing this crisis somehow and it's it's of course remarkable that 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 the society is so open and then so helpful but uh, my worry is that if uh, things go wrong in uh, in Ukraine if there is a worsening of the military situation if uh, there is a um, fall of, of one of the big cities, which we all hope will not happen, but we need to be realistic. Then we can have um, several hundred thousands people in, in in Poland within a few days, and I I don't, I, I think Poland is not prepared for that. And when we talk about European solidarity, so the, for example, the Polish government does not want uh, relocation, um, systemic relocation across Europe because he doesn't want to set a precedent that basically in the future... If, that Poland will have to take people from Syria. For example, yeah. And so, so that's, that's, that's a problem and I think there is a, there is a risk. I hope it, it will not materialize, but, but there, is a, there is a risk in, in that regard that things can still go out of control. And um, so I need more help is needed, and, but also much more action from the Polish... Uh, Arturo, we're coming to the end of our time, but from an Italian perspective, it's less the refugees that are putting pressure on. It's more, is it more kind of cost of living, energy prices? What, what do you think the, the thing which could turn Italian opinion would be? Yeah, I think energy, because, because it is the main preoccupation at the moment, more, more than migra- migrants. Uh, and we we receive uh, less and less migrants than than Poland, and the problem is uh, is energy and and uh, and the economy in particular. So we're definitely going to come back to this. I think many many times uh, on this podcast, unfortunately, because from the discussion we've just had, it doesn't sound like this is going to end anytime soon. But there is one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Marie, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I'm reading um, a book called um, Dark Shadows Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan, which is uh, writ- which was written by Kazakhstan-based journalist uh, Joanna Lillis. Um, and it's a sort of description of the main challenges Kazakhstan has been facing since independence in 1991. And um, a second edition was just published, which also tackles the protests that Kazakhstan experienced at the beginning of this year. So I thought it was a good opportunity to refresh my knowledge about Kazakhstan. Fantastic. What about you, Piotr? I'm 
reading now only about the Balkans. I think the Balkans is an extremely interesting region, uh, but politically also an, uh, extremely important in the in in the in these upcoming year, months and years, and because of the enlargement policy and and um, and the dilemmas the EU is facing. And I wanted to deepen my very. Um, limited knowledge about the uh, the region and and um, so I'm reading many books um, including Ivo Andrich's uh, classical um, uh, bridge on Drina and now Misha Glenis uh, the history of Balkans um, um, which is um, a fantastic read and I think should be recommended to anybody interested in the region what about you Arturo my suggestion is is about uh, is a is a book about about not about the the, the, the European solidarity but uh, but Russian ideology and this is a book uh, only in Italian uh, written by by uh, an Italian diplomat uh, Luca Gori and Luca Gori uh, wrote this book that uh, the title is the Eternal Russia uh, try to explore the ideology of of Putin regime and in particular the the, the, the mix between between the conservatorism and the nihilism that uh, is characterizing the, the the action of the of the Russian regime. Great. Well, that sounds fantastic. We'll put up links to all the books that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do head to whatever platform you've used to download us from and subscribe to the world in 30 minutes and while you're there why don't you give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help bring other people to the podcast but for now from Marie Dumoulin, Arturo Varvelli, (laughs) Piotr Buras and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of this week's podcast was Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Chris Eichberger 